This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Welcome to Bite Into It. A big thank you to Rachel Short, who's been covering Test Pattern for September. Those last three hours have been rather glorious. Test Pattern will be back between four and seven next Wednesday. Tonight, we've got Colin Jacobs and Joe Eaton with me in studio. Vanessa Tahoka, thanks for joining us. Uh, this evening, we're going to bring you the app that lets you collect and, and analyse all the data that's important to your existence. So stick around to hear about the Exist app. We want to say a big thank you to everyone who subscribed during Radiothon. The power period finished at 5pm today and the phones are ringing hot. Uh, we particularly want to thank our Bite Intuit listeners. Thanks for being with us and we wish you lots of luck with the prizes. Colin, let's head to some news this evening. What have we got? Oh, hi there. Yes. So... And one of the things that popped up on the radar this week is the government are having another crack at dealing with piracy in Australia. Now, I admit to taking a perverse pride in Australia's reputation as world-class pirates <laughs> for some reason. Um, and you know, as you may remember, the government uh, have had a crack um, at this issue a couple of times in the past. The first one was unsuccessful, trying to implement a three-strike scheme and getting ISPs to agree to such a thing. Um, the second was implementing a ban list for piracy domains, and that one is actually in effect, which is a bit of a worry and a whole separate issue. So now they're coming at it again. They're proposing a voluntary code for ISPs that would include things like monitoring and strikes and some sort of um, ramped-up blocking regime and technical measures for identifying pirated content and whatnot. So I'm a little disappointed that the government are pushing this while at the same time ignoring all calls for actually reforming copyright and introducing fair use and whatnot. But the question this time is whether the ISPs and the tech industry are going to be willing to sit down at the table and discuss a voluntary code of conduct of some kind or whether they're just going to stick up the finger and tell the copyright lobby to, uh, to try again. Well, anything that requires the ISPs to regulate this more is is a lot more onerous and it's got to cost money and, and we wonder about the passing on of those costs to consumers. That's right. And the, the copyright lobby had a go with the, the, the Dallas Buyers Club case where you remember they went to court to try and get the contact information for people that pirated that movie so they could sue them and Ionet went to court and def defended their users and ultimately the copyright lobby lost. The judge just didn't want to have a bar of them sending extortionate letters demanding thousands of dollars when their actual damages were the cost of a DVD. So the law is on the side of the ISPs. Like the C Copyright Act doesn't give them the right to demand fines of thousands of dollars from their users. But, you know, with, will government pressure amount to something? Mm. We'll, we'll see. Well, it's been great to see Choices Advocacy for consumers in this space as well, putting out, um, you know, essays on perhaps some of the, the motivations driving consumers to seek content from other, other sources. So, uh, yeah, it's been great to see their work in this space. I hope that they'll continue to be vocal advocates for consumer rights in this space. In wireless charging news, will we have a range boost soon? Um, wireless gadgets uh, are always um, sort of battery suckers and we're always concerned about how much life we get out of our wireless devices. With the new um, iPhones being able to do contact uh, charging on a pad, um, it's getting closer and closer to being you know, standardised kind of technology. But it's always been a challenge to get juice over the air from a foot away. 
there's a new startup called Pi, founded by two graduates from MIT, that's developed a wireless charger that uses a version of inductive charging, which is the same as you'll see in the, the iPhone pad chargers, to send power further than previous versions of the technology. So it's pretty straightforward in theory. Um, you create an alternating electromagnetic field and then have an induction coil um, attached to a smaller device to get power from it. And now, um, and then you send that off to your your wireless gadget. Uh, but you know, it's been pretty tricky to do that uh, very far away from the device. According to TechCrunch, um, this particular Pi device um, can use five phone or tablets at once, not laptops at the moment, with the rate of charge falling as the device moves further away from the charging station. It will cost under $200 when it goes on sale next year, and uh, let's hope it works. Um, as it's been reported before, a whole lot of long-range wireless chargers have failed before they've been launched as real products. So at the moment, this is still vaporware, vaporware warning. And I wonder if I have an implantable medical device like an insulin pump or a pacemaker or something, how close do I want to get to one of these things? It's a, it'll become an increasing concern in the future, I think. Yeah, it will be. You can decide how comfortable you are as you move closer and further away and, oh, this feels nice. This is a nice level. <laughs> Whoops, my heart stopped. Oh, take no, a step too back. close, too close. So uh, whenever I see news about self-driving cars, I'm always keen to click on that because I love technology and uh, the promise of being freed from the tedium of driving in traffic is something that really appeals to me. Plus, it sort of feels like the future being driven around by a robot. Yeah, you'll just have the tedium of waiting in the traffic but not actually controlling the vehicle. Well, at least I can browse Reddit while That's I'm actually right. underway or something and not be breaking the law or endangering anyone's life. That's a whole nother tedium. Yeah. So one of the things that uh, that uh, popped up in the news this week is the startup Zooks, uh, which is headed by a Melbourneian named Tim Kent Kentley Clay great name and headquartered in the, the US, uh, have come out of stealth mode and now they say they're in Godzilla mode and they've raised uh, well over a billion dollars in venture capital, including from Tencent in China and some A-listers of the uh, VC brigade in the United States. They're a self-driving car startup as well. And the field is a little crowded. There's a few big players already, but Zooks say that they're not making incremental change. They're going to create a robot that has as much similarity to a current car as a as a automobile did to the carriage they're saying it's not a, a cars aren't horses it's not a carriages shift. Yeah. right cars aren't horses carriages and our robots won't be just self-driving cars wow now what does that actually mean actually they haven't disclosed all of those details but it does promise they, they're promising to try and get something on the market by 2020 which is very very soon in when you think of a technology that's as revolutionary as transport robots, you know, whatever they may be, let's not call them self-driving cars. It's very intriguing, isn't it? Because to attract that much funding, they must have an incredible pitch. That's right. And already some very big players are there in the space. And so it's very interesting. The vision that people have is you won't need to even own a car anymore. You'll just dial one up with an app and the robot will come and take you where you need to go. And all the hassle of parking and maintenance and whatnot will be obsolete, a thing of the past. Will the company that ultimately succeeds here be the one that makes the cars and the app or will there be a bunch of manufacturers making different cars and then the app and the service and how you use them will be separate and so there are two different strategies and uh, it's way too early to tell how that's going to shake out but now that tesla for instance have gone from well maybe we'll be selling the robot cars to we're actually going to run a network of our own um time will tell take the the technology will decide i think so Ford used to talk about the fact that 
people would ask for faster horses and um, that they didn't really foresee the, the invention of, of the car. The regular person didn't foresee that invention of the combustion engine and everything. What, what's phase shift about, about this, do you think? Do we have any clues about what could be different to the other self-driving cars that people are proposing? Is it going to be like a transformer that, you know, a robot that comes to you and then forms itself around you as a vehicle? <laughs> I'm I just trying know. to imagine what a phase shift is in this in this context. Personally, I hope that it has legs uh, <laughs> of some kind, like the wheel is, the wheel is old technology, so perhaps they can, can improve on that. Um, oh, yeah. Treads that can go upstairs, who knows? But I love it. Um, but it will have... When I talk to people about this, there's a bit of scepticism. People are, they feel unsafe and whatnot. That's still a concern. And so if it's too radically different, mm. then how are they going to succeed? And these things will have to be on the road along with all of the existing cars, which will be around for 20 years. So excellent. Yeah. A billion dollars must be worth something. We've just been joined in studio with our guest for the evening. Bell Cooper is a co-founder of Hello Code, the two-person company punching above its weight in the personal al analytics app space with the Exist app. Bell is an iOS developer, writer and content marketer. You might also know Hello Code's work from Lada app, the speedy bookmarking tool for developers. Welcome to Byte, Bell. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. So for our listeners who haven't had the pleasure of coming across the Exist app yet, how would you describe it? So Exist takes all the data that you already have in fitness trackers or apps that you already use and pulls it all together and analyzes it for you. And the point of it is to find trends and patterns and connections in that data that you wouldn't be able to find yourself. So we're trying to find meaning in that data and make it useful because in the silos where you have a fitness tracker and you have another app for tracking something else and another app for something else, it's really hard to find any meaning or to make any use of that data, but it all exists. So we want to do something with it. And usually it's uh, other companies who want us want to take our data and don't necessarily give us much back for it. How did you start to think about um, creating this app as, as a tool for other people? Yeah, it was something that came from personal experience when fitness trackers like Fitbit weren't quite hitting the mainstream, but were starting to gather a little bit of interest in the, in the tech market. And an app called Moves came out, which was free and you could just download it and it would track your step count. And it was kind of all the rage. And I tried it and I thought this is really fun. And after a few weeks, I just noticed I didn't really look at it anymore and I didn't really care how many steps I was getting. And we started to notice that it was a trend that a lot of, lot of people talked about getting a Fitbit and tracking their steps and trying to hit it every day and walking around their garage or their lounge room trying to hit their step count. And then after a while, they took the Fitbit off and put it in a drawer because it didn't motivate them anymore. And they weren't really getting much out of it. And we thought that we could do something better with that because people were interested enough to pay $100 for a device to put on their arm and track their steps. They were obviously curious and a lot of them wanted to improve how active they were or improve their sleep. And we thought there's there's something we can do with this data beyond what's happening with the, the fitness tracker or the app itself. Hmm. So I noticed part of this, the pitch for the app is that it figures out what makes you more happy and more productive. So I'm curious to know what sort of data can you use and do you need to use to figure out what's making me happy and or productive? Yeah, the, those are two of the most popular ones, I think, the pop most popular types of data. People definitely want to be more productive and they want to know what makes them happy so they can do more of it. So in terms of making you happy, that comes from one of the only two types of data where you actually put the data straight into Exist. For the most part, we're just pulling data that already exists in other apps. But for mood tracking, we built that in because we, we couldn't find it in any other app that we could get the data from. So we'll send you an email or a notification in our mobile app every night that says, 
how do how would you rate today from one to five? Was it terrible? Was it perfect? Was it somewhere in between? And if you want, you can add a little note about what happened and what made it good or bad. And that's that's where we get the happiness metric from. That's your mood rating per day. So you have one of those each day and we can correlate that with the weather or the music you listen to or how much work you got done or how active you were. And for productivity, we use an app called Rescue Time that we connect to, which tracks the apps and, and uh, websites that you use on, on your computer and how productive or distracted you were, how much time you spent on Reddit, how much time you spent working. And we also <laughs> integrate with Todoist, which tracks your tasks, and GitHub for developers. So there are quite a few in terms of productivity. And obviously it depends if you're a developer or if you're a marketer, you might have different ways that you track productivity. So Rescue Time is kind of an all-encompassing one. That's pretty interesting. Um, we work uh, in an agile way at work. And so we're used to having stand-up boards where we put, you know, how we're feeling and how productive we're, we're getting and are we in the zone, that sort of thing. Did you Were you inspired by those sorts of things or, or were you initially just looking at what data you could pull from other sources? Yeah, mood was one that everyone was interested in. I think we all we always thought there's a lot there's a lot we can do to improve our mood and we're all curious about what affects our mood and how we can improve it. But we we really had trouble tracking down any way to get that data. And it was actually a really big experiment with mood because like I said, almost everything else we get from other services. Mm. And we actually wanted to do that on purpose. We didn't want to ask people to have to input data because we thought nobody's gonna do it. They yeah. won't want to. We can make use of us all this passive data. And that's the best way to help people without them putting in any effort. But we were actually really surprised that mood tracking was super popular and people kept asking for more insights about mood and expanding out the mood data. And so we've actually now added a second way of putting data straight into the app, which we just launched, which is custom tags, where you can make a tag for anything you want to track. So you're not limited by the types of data that we can get from other services anymore. You can make up a tag for anxiety or when you're feeling stressed or tired or a particular type of food, if you want to track if you have a, a, an allergy to gluten or to dairy or something, anything you can think of, you can make a tag for it. And again, it's been super popular, even though three years ago we thought nobody wants to import data manually. We've ended up really focusing on that. Because I think it's very important to know the correlation between happiness and salt and vinegar chips. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. You can see it in the data. So how do you discover those patterns? Because if 10 or 20 things happen to me today and my mood is a certain way how do you over time figure out which are the the biggest contributors to my happiness yeah so it definitely takes time it takes about three to four weeks of inputting your data and we we try to backfill any data from your fitness tracker or other services you're already using but for something like mood or tags you need three or four weeks or so of putting them in before we can find anything that's significant and we try really hard not to show anything that's that's not going to be significant so that we're not giving people the wrong idea uh, but then we just look at basically every two attributes so we have attributes of data within each service and we look at every two, every pairing of two and just check, is there any correlation between them? We we don't talk about causation at all because there's just no way to know everyone's so individual. So all we can say is there is a correlation between these two. We can tell you how strong the correlation is and how confident the algor algorithm is that we've found a correlation. And over time, you'll see those increase or decrease. Sometimes they'll go away because the correlation doesn't exist anymore. And we also show people in the groups that people really care about, like mood and productivity and activity, we'll show them the top 10 things that we've found that affect that, that make it go up or down for weight 
we, we show you what makes it go down for everything else. You want to make it go up, like your activity and your mood. So we'll show you the top 10 things we found that correlate with that. So one of the things that attracted me to your story was uh, that you talk about the, the data and the sort of things that you learn from a very personal angle. And mm-hmm. it reminded me a bit of the way OkCupid blogged about their data to help people understand the sorts of insights they could get looking at things en masse. Um, could you tell us a bit about what you've discovered, you know, what your insights have been and how that's that's made you feel? Yeah, definitely. I think some of the most exciting things I've found are things that have actually changed my behaviour. And I think probably that's what most people want when they come to exist is they're thinking, I want to be more happy. I want to be more productive. I want to know what will make me do those things. And then I want to put it into action. And that's quite tricky, but some of the best things I've found definitely fit that. So one, one good example is I usually have one coffee every morning. That's kind of my staple. But using custom tags, I've been tracking when I have one coffee or two coffees or no coffees. And I've actually found that one coffee is t- my sweet spot. Absolutely. I have a really bad day if I have no coffee or if I have two, even though when I have two coffees, I also tend to have more energy in the day. Another one that I found that's really changed my behaviour is I've been tracking workouts and since we introduced custom tags, I started tracking when I got a headache and I didn't think there was a correlation between them. I was just curious, why would I get a headache? It turns out I get them almost always when I do a workout because I'm really bad at hydrating after a workout. So now I I know this, so I keep it in mind. So when I start a workout, I'll make the effort of making sure I have a water bottle full next to me because otherwise I know it's really likely that I'm going to get a headache and I wouldn't have known because the headaches come on so much later than the workout. I'd never made the connection myself and I think that's what is cool about Exist is when it finds the connections you couldn't find yourself. So those are some interesting insights into your own behaviour and and the causes and effects in your own life. Can you do the same on an aggregate level and see what, across your entire user base, what the, the, the correlations are and what the surprising patterns are? Yeah, to some degree we can. And we do this a little bit in the app. So you can see... There's a page where we show trends about your data and we'll also include a little bit about how you compare to other users. So, for instance, I know that I wake up earlier and I go to bed earlier than everyone else. Most of our users go to bed almost at midnight and most of them are not getting enough sleep. They're all about just under seven hours, which is probably not enough for most people. Um, And we know that most people tend to be happier on the weekends, which is pretty common. So uh, I'm the same there. I'm happier on the weekends as well. But it's also interesting to break it down by geographical area, which we've done a little bit when we look at the data in aggregate. So we found, for instance, when looking at mood, that it seems like most of our American users tend to be less happy when they spend time on social media. Or it could be the other way around. It could be that when they're feeling down, they spend time on social media. There's definitely a correlation there. Whereas for UK users and Australian users, it tends to be the opposite. We tend to spend time on social media when we're quite happy. So that's quite interesting. And we also found that users in the US tend to be quite happy across the weekend on Saturdays and Sundays. They tend to be at their happiest. But for us in Australia, our happiness really dips on Sundays and it usually goes up on Friday rather than waiting until Saturday. So I think for us, as soon as we finish work on Friday, we start to <laughs> feel good and by Sunday afternoon we're really feeling down because we're not looking forward to going back to work. So it's quite interesting that in the US we found at least among our users their happiness tends to spread out right through Sunday night. So in order to actually get some value and be able to find some of these interesting patterns what's the minimum amount of data I need to bring to the app? Like how many integrations do I need for it to be useful? 
It definitely helps to have more. The more data you have, the better. One of the great things about having the custom tags now, as well as mood tracking, is that you don't need any other service. So you can just start putting those in. And if you're patient enough to wait the three or four weeks to get enough data in there, you can get quite a lot out of it just with those. We definitely recommend some kind of fitness tracker. Most people can just get that out of their phone these days with Apple Health or Google Fit. So that will really help. And we can also do weather for you. So if you get one of our apps and you give it location access every day or so, it will check what suburb you're in and it will get weather data for that. So we can check things like how long the day is or how much wind there is or how much rain there is and how that affects you. But we also have a page. If you go to our website, there's a page that you can click through to where you can click all the services that you have and it'll show you all the different types of data we get from each one and kind of across all the types of data we have, it'll show you how much you'll be able to get if you connect those services and it'll give you a rating to tell you how useful exists will be to you. And if it's a really low rating, it'll say without more services, you probably won't get much out of it. But if it's a good rating, it'll say there's enough data here that we can probably find some patterns for you. Have you considered integrating any sort of music data? We have Last FM integration, yeah, which connects with almost everything so Spotify and all the big ones connect to that as well. And in terms of providing insights into that do you look at genres and say you know and look for correlations between types of genres or or do you look at other data points on music? We don't do genres yet we've considered it but we we haven't integrated it yet but right now we do do artists and we do albums as well so we also do small insights uh, as well as correlations so we'll say things like this is your most listened artist in the last 30 days this is your most listened track in the last week and we also send out a weekly email with your stats for the past week and a few of your correlations just to give you some of what's on the app if you haven't been looking and we usually highlight what you've been listening to there as well as well as doing correlations so we can say you listen to this artist when you're more productive yes or you tend to listen to this artist when you're feeling down or having a bad day <laughs> that's amazing so there are a range of apps like um the finish you app i'm not sure if you've come across that one that aim to influence behavior with micro actions and suggesting little nudges or playlists that you can do to improve your behavior in certain areas of your life uh, does your app ever make suggestions about behaviors to change outcomes Not very much. We have tried it a little in the past and we definitely thought we would go in that direction when we started out. That's something we thought people wanted and we tend to do an annual survey that we send out to all our users to get some feedback about how we're doing. And when we did it last year, earlier last year, we definitely got a lot of votes for more proactive suggestions. So we thought people wanted that more and we've done a a little bit of it in terms of things like showing you your top 10, what makes you mood better, what makes your productivity better, that kind of thing. But we really haven't gone as far as to tell anyone this is what you should do. And it's the same with pointing out causation in correlations where we're quite very tricky about doing Mm. that because we really feel like it could be stepping over a line and we're quite worried about coming off as annoying and and making people annoyed by us trying to tell them what their data means when really there's so much we don't know about them. Even with custom tags, there's still so much that people aren't tracking. So... Uh, We are in the middle of a conversation with Belle Cooper, who's from Hello Code, and we're talking about the Exist app, which they've developed. It's on iOS and Android and on the web. So, Belle, you're living the dream. You've got (laughs) got the startup going, got a successful app out there in the marketplace. How did you make the the transition into this lifestyle, into this business, and um, has it been everything that you expected? (laughs) I'd say not at all. It hasn't been what we expected at all. We definitely thought it would go a different way when we started out. I think after a couple of months when we decided we liked this idea and we wanted to keep going with it, 
we definitely had this idea that probably we would get VC funding and we would maybe hire employees at some point and maybe move overseas and it would be this big thing. And it just didn't work out that way. I did a few VC meetings and I was terrible at them and we started to wonder, is this a good idea? And over time, I think it just happened that we didn't keep pursuing that path. But now that it's turned out that it's just the two of us and we're just barely making enough for the two of us to live on and, and not really wanting to make a whole lot more than just two comfortable salaries, we're actually really happy that things didn't work out for us that way because this is so much more comfortable for us, I think, and we can do what we want. We don't have to do what other people want. And for this kind of app in particular, we're dealing with really personal private data and we feel a huge responsibility to do that right. And so we really like that we can do it the way that we want to do it and we don't have to do what other people want or what makes the most money. You bring up something really important there, which is the ethical considerations you have to think about when handling people's personal data. I mean, on the on the plus side, you're not a massive corporation asking for that data for whatever, you know, uh, non-transparent reasons. Uh, but what what were some of the ethical issues you've had to consider in your design? It's definitely an issue. It's something that's ongoing and we always have to think really carefully about what we're doing. And there are lots of trade-offs we make. For instance, we don't have the kind of analytics about how users use our app that we would love to have because that's the kind of thing where we don't want to expose what our users are doing in the app interacting with their own data to some kind of analytics package. Mm. And so at this point, we've stopped short of building our own because who has time for that? But we, we don't want to make that compromise. So there are definitely things where we have to make a choice based on what we're comfortable doing. And there's a lot of stuff we're not comfortable with that other people would be happy with. We're not using all that data that we have access to to make money yeah. in terms of selling it. We're, we're not doing any kind of advertising with it. And... We have some things in place to try and make our users feel more comfortable as well because they're obviously giving up a lot of control by giving us their data. So, for instance, if you delete your account, we completely delete all your data. So if you come back and say, oh, I didn't want to do that, it's too bad. We've deleted it because we think it's better to err on the side of deleting it, getting rid of it forever and being safe. And you'll miss out on some insights and correlations if you didn't want to do that, but your data is not sitting there on our servers when you don't have an account. So those are the kind of things that we try and do to make our users as comfortable as, as they can be. So as a two-person company, then you have to divide up the roles of chief techno technology officer, chief operating officer, CEO, business development, security, privacy. So how do you and your partner go about dividing up these roles in such a small company? There's a lot of overlap with, with just two of us. There's a lot of overlap, but for the past year or two, my partner's been working full-time on the business. So that was a big jump for us when we both went from working on it kind of as a side project around our day jobs to him working on it full-time and me still having a day job. And so because of that, he's taken on a lot of things like handling the business admin and dealing with the accountant and all those kind of things and dealing with a lot more of the customer support. But for a lot of that stuff, we do have a lot of overlap. We just try and share it up so that neither of us gets burdened too much with it. But my partner does all of the web and API work. He does the Android app and I do the iOS app. So there's kind of a clear split there. And because I have a background in marketing through my day job, that's something that else that I take on. So we have some, some clear split in, in those kind of areas where we already have some skills and experience. And then for all the stuff where we don't know what we're doing, like running a company, we just share it up. How do you um, decide on your development cycle with the iOS and the Android platforms? And, you know, does, does one of you go first and then you sort of, you know, do some sort of porting process or, you know, do you argue about which you're going to do? Or? 
yeah, it's very much it's very much a process of Android going first and me porting to iOS just because, one, I've been working on it part-time while Josh was working full-time, and two, I've only been developing at all for two, three years maybe, and Josh has been a, a developer pretty much all his life. So he's a lot faster at implementing things. He's a lot faster at figuring out how things are going to work. So it usually makes more sense for him to play with something and get it right on Android and then tell me, here's how I did it. And oh, it's and it's a- craziness to try and solve the problems on both <laughs> platforms in tandem. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, completely. It's so much easier to take basically what he's done and just adjust it for mm. iOS to the ways that, that iOS works. Mm. How do you do testing and quality assurance? Do you have a suite? of beta testers that you could push out those releases to and yeah we do because there are only two of us we, we definitely rely on those in particular for ios as i said because i'm such so new to development i i end up with a lot more bugs than josh does so i definitely rely on that beta process to go through lots of iterations especially with a new feature like when we just did custom tags where it really changed exist in a big way and it touched a lot of areas that already existed so that's something where i really push my beta testers for feedback and crash reports well before it gets out into the store So you're bootstrapping this company. How did you decide on a subscription model? Did you try any other things first or yeah, was so this the only one that made sense? <laughs> Early on, we actually tried essentially a Kickstarter, but oh. not on Kickstarter. So we ran it on our own site and it was for people to jump in before we'd even launch. So they, they didn't get access immediately to anything. Um, but we had a lot of interest in the idea. Lots of people thought this could be cool. And we had quite a big mailing list at that point And we thought it's time to try and make some money to help us get the beta out because we were struggling to go any faster without making money off it. And it didn't make as much as we wanted. We were hoping to make enough that we could live off that money for a year or so and really push the product. And we didn't make that much. But we did get lots of people in early who paid a, a cheaper subscription price for, a, for an annual subscription and they really supported what we were doing and it helped us get lots of users straight away who could help us figure out the product and improve it. So it worked in some ways, it didn't work in others, but I think at that point we, we knew that it was going to make more sense to do a monthly payment where we would have recurring income. And, and how have you found the balance between higher subscription fee equals more revenue equals fewer users how do you how did you arrive at the current pricing scheme i think the the big thing that made sense for us when we were figuring out the pricing was looking at similar services so for instance we we integrate with runkeeper and we integrate with fitbit and both of those have premium subscriptions and i don't think most users use them most people buy a hundred dollar fitbit and use the free app and and never need to pay for any extras but they're priced at a roughly similar amount, about seven, eight, nine dollars a month. So for us, it felt like we're taking all of this data and putting it all in one place and giving you more than each of those will give you for seven dollars each. So we thought six dollars was fair, and we do have a, a slightly cheaper annual price. So if you're going to commit for a year, you get a discount. And we definitely find that having the balance of two really helps with cash flow because every time we get that annual fee, it really bumps up the monthly income. But it also means for those users, they get a bit of a discount for committing for a year. That's great. It's actually uh, made me think about uh, when I've tried things to to capture some data and then when I've fallen away my use of them. And I, I do think if there were more correlations between things that I was confident were being handled in a sensitive, secure fashion, then that would be something that would be quite a lot more attractive than just checking your, you know, your phone kind of movement things, which are very patchy alone. Yeah. Um, particularly love the music integration. Um in terms of your skills, it's a great way to learn to be a, a, a developer. Um, 
how have you gotten to the point where you were sort of confident to jump in and, and run with um, the iOS half of the app? I, I probably did it a bit too early, to be oh, honest. Oh, no such thing. Don't say that. <laughs> I mean, when I think about it now and I think about how much pressure there is on handling the iOS app that has so many people paying for it, it makes me think, oh, was I ready for this? But initially we started out before I had done any development. So the plan was I would do marketing because that's what I knew and I'd help with business admin and that kind of thing. And Josh would handle all the technical side and we just hadn't decided what we would do about iOS because nobody knew how to do it at that point. And I had tried learning programming a couple of times, various web technologies. And then when I picked up iOS development, for some reason that was the one that stuck. I really enjoyed it and I went through some courses and did some tutorial apps. And then when I was ready to try my my own app for the first time, we took one little feature, the mood tracking actually, from Exist. And I built an app that all it did was the mood tracking and nothing else. And it was super simple. And then it worked and I did it. And I thought, this is cool. I could add to it. And eventually it grew into the app that I'm developing now. So it's been three years, I suppose, and it's become a fully fledged mobile client for the app. But it started out as something so small and just kind of grew. So I don't think I ever really made that choice that I'm ready to be the iOS developer now. It just kind of happened. Have you ever had to bring any outside help or have you considered that in the future you might grow and you might bring in some extra developers and so on? We would love to. There have definitely been times when we've been frustrated at how slowly we move with only the two of us, especially because we haven't both been full-time. And there are definitely some areas where we'd love people who have more experience to help us out, like design, for instance. It'd be really cool to get in a designer and do us a nice icon and refresh the app. But... We just haven't had the cash flow. But I think in future, that's probably something where we'd look at maybe some contracting to bring in people to help us out with that kind of thing. At this stage, we're pretty happy with just supporting the two of us. Uh, so I'm not sure that we would ever have employees, but it would be great to, to be able to contract people who have more experience than we do. So, Belle, do you lean very much on the Melbourne Developer Network or the Startup Network? Not so much now. Initially, we did. And like I said, we had these grand plans and I think we... we leaned on our network a lot more then because we were trying to grow really quickly and we thought that that's the path that we would go on. Now we don't so much, but we're really transparent about how we run our business. We do podcasts and we do blog posts and we're really open with our income. Everyone can see how much money we're making and we're really open with our roadmap. Everyone can vote on what we're working on next. And I think that that's really helped us connect with our users, but also other startup developers all over the world, particularly indies who feel like these big startups don't understand us and we don't understand them. And there's a really big divide. It's really nice to connect with others in a similar situation who are kind of struggling to just make enough to live off and just want to make something that they think is cool. Finally, do you have an idea for the next app? I know you already, this is your second product. Is it Larder is, is, was uh, out before Exist, um, if, if I'm oh, not mistaken? Oh, the other way around, but uh, yeah, we have to Right, and so yes, have you got any plans to expanding the portfolio? We do actually have a third product that we're working on. It's not released yet because we built it for ourselves and obviously two products is plenty for us to be going on with, but we're building a, a product for transparent companies like ours to share their roadmap publicly. So our roadmap for Exist and our roadmap for LADA are both hosted on ChangeMap and that's a product that we're building internally just to do what we want with our roadmap and to serve our own purpose. And eventually we're planning to be able to sell a subscription to that to other businesses who also want to be transparent with their roadmap. 
Mm. Oh, great. I do think it's it's quite a thing of beauty for a company that's all about data analytics and, and um, increasing the transparency of your data yourself, that you are equally transparent about your business. And it, I think it uh, inspires a lot of confidence. Uh, we've been speaking to Bell Cooper from Hello Code about the Exist app. If you want to check it out, head to exist.io. It's, um, it's really worth a look. Great to see some local developers doing such a good job. I hope you're uh, listening before when we spoke to Bell about the Exist app, but uh, we thought we'd cover a a little bit more news now and heading back to Google who've been in the news for a, a while lately about um, some of the gender diversity issues within their company uh, the most recent news is that three women who worked at Google are suing the company over its salary practices they've accused the the, um, the company of discrimination against female employees by systematically paying them less than men who do similar jobs Colin, did you have a look at this article at all? I did. So the what it's interesting. Like not only is this a hot topic at the moment, misogyny and um, gender inequality in Silicon Valley is a it, just a recurring theme, and it's clearly a big problem, and not getting any better. One of the arguments that are taken to this court case, which is interesting, is that they have all of the data on who gets paid what inside Google, and so looking at the looking at the data, they've made the prediction that um, if for it to be just a coincidence that so many women in similar roles earn less than men, that it would be like a million to one chance that um, that, that just happened to be how people's sort of skill sets and capabilities landed. Now, Google's defense is that, no, they, they track all of this very carefully and they um, have very detailed metrics on who's performing well at work and people are paid according to that. But the numbers don't necessarily support that. So it's so it's will be very interesting to see how this plays out. Yeah, and women are making up only 31% of Google's workforce, um, but they hold only 20% of the company's higher paying engineering jobs. So I guess that's an issue too. Right, just a coincidence or is the workplace culture got something to do with that? And it's hard to... Uh, to dismiss that possibility out of hand, that's for sure. Yeah, if you're interested in reading more about that, um, check out the New York Times, look up Google there and you'll find it. There's a lot more detail about uh, the prospective case, but I guess we'll report back on it when we know more. A bit of drama with the World Wide Web Consortium today. So the W3C, that's the body that comes up with and certifies all the standards that make the web work. Like um, HTML and JavaScript and all of the technologies that underpin all of the um, web apps that we like to use. The the latest proposal that's come to the W3C is to have a standard for in, inserting digital rights management into media streams. It sounds so innocuous, doesn't it, digital rights management? But what does it usually mean in practice? What it means, yes, it, like it's tied up with politics and the law and so on. So what it means is in basically encrypting content so that as a user, you can't decrypt it and do what you want with it. it you can only consume that content according to the wishes of the company that's providing it. So it's a company like Netflix, um, for instance, that are pushing to have a digital rights management standard as part of the web standards so that they can stream your video, um, use an open standard to do so, but have complete control over the content and tr to try and avoid piracy, so they claim. But there's it's not quite so simple because, for instance, in the United States, and the same is true here as well, it can be illegal to circumvent um, DRM technology. And there are good reasons to do that besides pirating. It might be that you're, um, you're blind and you need to port the media over to a device that make, is perhaps more accessible for you. 
Uh, and so there are also a lot of different standards on what's an acceptable use in different countries and what's you know, how, how it's acceptable to have different backups of content, for example. That's right. And there are technical issues too. DRM can go wrong and then the content's inaccessible and it's, it makes a worse experience for the users. So this is one of the first times, I think, where the W3C board have split on adding something to the uh, standards that they maintain. Um, they've gone to a vote and 30% of the board voted against the, uh, the the standard that's been proposed for adding DRM. And the uh, Electronic Frontier Foundation have quit the W3C over this issue. They are, they're opposed to the, um, to the way that it's being introduced and what it means for users. So it's a, it's a bit of a, a, a watershed for the W3C where it's a, you know, the politics and the lobby groups and whatnot have really sort of reached into uh, web technology and caused a bit of a rift. Definitely. I mean, the last time um, they, the AFF have brought up a, a previous time that they were disappointed in uh, some of the W3C decisions and they bring up the 2013 uh, decision of uh, making a standard for encrypted media extensions, uh, an API uh, that was uh, involved in in uh, sort of delivering DRM type stuff within the web browsers. So they've had a strong stance on, on this issue in the past and uh, yeah, it's it's really problematic that um, rights uh, advocates like the EFF won't be at this table anymore. Yeah, the, like the Free Software Foundation, um, they're sort of the extremists of this world. They actually think that proprietary software is a crime, you know, but they're certainly opposed to all forms of DRM just completely. EFF were willing to come to the table and have some um, guidelines around what they would actually mean and uh, um, have uh, the you know companies sign up to... S- um, some measures that would mean that they wouldn't be going after people who were circ- they would allow circumvention for the right sorts of reasons and whatnot, but they weren't able to get that through, and so they've they've pulled the pin. Mm. And I think we've quickly got some time for news about Equifax, which is a credit firm that was um, that's been in the news recently because a lot of their data was leaked. Uh, the latest news is that uh, their data was actually breached before the well publicised May hack. This like this definitely is a contender for the worst hack in human history, basically, because it's hard to overstate just how important the, the three credit reporting agencies are to the lives of people in the United States and in many other countries as well. Uh, if you ever apply for a credit card or a loan or any sort of service, really, they're probably pulling your credit history from one of these companies. So Equifax um, had files that on 143 million Americans, which is the majority of the population. And the information that they were entrusted with with keeping track of was people's names, date of birth, contact information, their social security number, their entire credit history. Like that's everything you need on a platter to impersonate that person and completely ruin their credit. Now that we know the details of the hack, unpatched servers, administration consoles that are open to the um, public internet, it's just beggar's belief that they could have such shoddy security practices given the, the, the magnitude of the, the consequences of a leak. And you just think about, you know, any large organisations where their core business is seen to be finance, for example, but they're, they've tremendously underinvested in technology and it, it makes you think 
they've fundamentally misunderstood you know, how they get their work done. <laughs> that's, uh, and that's, their response to has been terrible, trying to sell people extra products <laughs> for, for credit protection and having a, a web app to check whether you've been affected with, it was actually just returning a, like a random yes. Uh, it's just, it's, it's basically incompetence and fraud. So yeah, um, what a great hack. How interesting. Glad a, I'm not American. <laughs> a quick event before we leave you for the evening. The Blockchain Ch- Centre run a weekly talk and trade crypto Bitcoin. So if you're new to cryptocurrencies or an old trading hand, or you just like to talk about this sort of thing, uh, this is the place to be. They meet up every Wednesday. So the next one's happening 6.30pm on the 27th of September in Southbank. So look up the Blockchain Centre on meetup.com if you're interested in that sort of event. We want to say a big thank you to Bell Cooper from Hello Code, uh, one of the co-founders of the company, uh, who is the producer of the Exist app. And we spoke to her earlier this evening. And a big thank you to Colin and Joe for being my partners in crime in studio tonight. I've been Vanessa, we've been Bite Into It, and we'll be back next Wednesday evening. Up next, the amazing International Pop Underground with Anthony Carew. Do stay tuned for that. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.